Hello again, friends, and welcome to Access City Hall on the Madison City Channel. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. It's nice to have you with us. The city of Madison does a lot of things for its residents and visitors, from protective services to parks, transit to trash, health clinics to neighborhood centers. We have an active city government. But those services don't come free, which is why a broad and strong property tax base is so important. And as the state of Wisconsin continues to cut shared revenue, the state of the local economy becomes even more critical. Here to discuss the city's efforts to expand the local economy and enhance its tax base are four key staff from the Division of Economic Development. Its director, Matt Miklaszewski, along with Dan Rolfs, Dan Kennelly, and Ruth Rolick. Matt Miklaszewski was named division director just 10 weeks ago after about eight years as the city's business resources manager. He is a graduate of the University of Wisconsin-Madison with a master's in urban planning from the UW-Milwaukee. Prior to coming to Madison, he was executive director of the Wauwatosa Economic Development Corporation. In his free time, he likes to bike, hike, and go to street festivals. Thanks very much for being with us, Matt, and uh, congratulations. Thank and thanks, you. Thanks, Dan, for being with us. Thank you. Ten weeks into the job, uh, any surprises? Um, not really surprises, but uh, just you know, a lot of great opportunities that continue to make themselves uh, apparent uh, with both projects that are, are happening currently within the city and also opportunities that we can t continue to see moving down the pipeline. Well, let's talk about some of the projects that have been in development for, for some time, most uh, especially including the Judge Doyle Square project and, and the Garver Feed Mill. Let's start with the Garver Feed Mill. Dan, as the community development project manager, is the project manager for this. The uh, Garber Feed Mill was built in 1905 as the U.S. Sugar Beet Company, uh, mm -hmm. built by the great UW alum Magnus Swenson as part of the sugar beet extraction industry that, that he founded. It was later a storage company, then a feed mill. It's been vacant for many years. Uh, it's been a city landmark since 1994 and a safety hazard almost that long. Uh, several years ago, the Commonwealth Development Corporation had a proposal for an arts incubator that uh, was about to be developed and then the economy fell apart and the, the financing uh, was no longer available. We've now had four proposals from a variety of organizations for everything from housing to an event center to a food production facility. And just last night, uh, we're, we're taping this in the middle of March, and just last night, the uh, selection committee voted. Uh, Dan, why don't you bring us up to, up to speed on, on what the committee did last night? Sure, thank you. Uh, last night, the committee voted to recommend to the council to accept the proposal from the Baum Development Group with a second option from the alternative continuum of care as a fallback position should the proposal from the Baum Group not uh, move forward for any reason. The committee appreciated the Baum Group's work with the neighborhood, their focus on uh, second stage food companies that will be doing food processing in Garver, and then the other aspect of the bound proposal that the neighborhood very much appreciated, and I think that the committee also appreciated, was the focus on the creation of micro lodges across a portion of the what is referred to as the North Platte uh, behind the Garver feed mill. Now this is a double reversal from what the scores indicated when, when the committee as individuals, when the committee members as individuals ranked the proposals, the Alexander Company proposal for an event center was scored highest with the Bauman proposal second. Is this unusual for this kind of reversal? I don't know if it's unusual, but I think it's something that reflects the, 
the city's goal for finding something that works best for the city and the neighborhood. And uh, I reiterated to the committee both before the meeting and last night, and I spoke to the neighborhood as well and indicated that the scores that were out there from the committee members are guideposts only. They are not binding, and the committee and the council reserve the right to do whatever they feel is in the best long-term interest of the city. And last night, the committee chose to take the action that they took, and uh, we'll move forward from there. Matt, you've got a related proposal that's also bubbling up within your division. That's the public market, mm -hmm. which is right now targeted for East Washington Avenue. We're going to talk in greater length about that a little later on, but do you see a potential for a conflict between what the BAM proposal for the, the food production facility is and what the public market district would, would bring? We don't. Uh, the public market district, what we're really interested in are those very early stage entrepreneurial type food businesses and helping to cultivate sort of those new food entrepreneurs. The space uh, that the Baum proposal is proposing for the Garver feed mill property seems to be targeted more towards second stage companies. So businesses that have already been up and running for a while that are maybe in need of more space or maybe moving from a business incubator into their own space. So we think that they each uh, will serve a different role within the food economy and as such can be complementary to one another. How, how, Dan, how much did the focus on, on food as opposed to um, housing or, or the events space uh, got, um, induce the, the, the committee to think that was the, the best proposal? What, what was it about the bound proposal that made it the winner? Well, I... I won't speak for the committee, obviously, but what I heard from the committee and what we heard from the neighborhood was that uh, there was strong support for the food production process. Madison has been known as a uh, hub of local food focus and the local food economy, and the Baum Group's focus on sort of the second stage of the second stage companies that would be moving from small startup incubators into bigger spaces, into needing more people, more production facilities. That's something that I think struck a lot of people as uh, a good opportunity for the city, uh, along with the fact that their development of the micro-lodges would be uh, an amenity for both the neighborhood and the city itself. I think the, the food production that really spoke to people as something that Madison has been and will be known for for a long time to come. As I know, the proposal that scored the highest in the individual scores was the Alexander Company proposal for event space and a gallery. And, and uh, some people thought that that could potentially be a, con a conflict or, or would, would compete with um, Overture Center, Monona Terrace, mm -hmm. and uh, other performance space and event space that the city already has. And the city would, in effect, be underwriting or helping to subsidize competition. Was that a consideration in the committee's discussion? I believe it was. Uh, I heard at least one committee member mention that that was a concern that they had and uh, there was testimony from m multiple residents both in the neighborhood and city staff about their concerns that this would be uh, a, comp a competition between existing city resources. So I think that did play into some of the, the decision making that went on last night. Matt, is that, is that a consideration, is that a rightful consideration for the city to take into account when it's deciding whether or not to support proposals, whether or not it would compete with other public or private facilities? 
Well, uh, to your point about the public and private, I, I think it really depends on, on the nature of, of the project. If it's an entirely private project, then it's likely not appropriate for the city to, to, to use that consideration. However, in this case, uh, the city owns uh, uh, the Garver Feed Mill property, have a vested interest in the broader uh, Ulbrich uh, Botanical Garden in Ulbrich Park. There's, you know, it's a significant uh, public facility in its entirety. Uh, so from that perspective, because it, it is a public facility, um, you know, it, it probably is appropriate to have as one consideration, certainly not the only consideration, but have as one consideration, uh, you know, what type of impact, either positive or negative, um, a project could have on, on other city facilities. So, for example, when a private developer like the, the Franks, Frank Production Company or, or the Majestic folks, or somebody proposes a, a concert hall on East Washington Avenue mm -hmm. that could potentially compete with the Barrymore or the High Noon, if it's a private sector development, it's not really appropriate for the city to say, well, we don't want to endanger the Barrymore or the High Noon, we'll let the market sort that out, whereas if it's the city doing something, that would be a different analysis? Well, the, the key, I think, is really, you know, is the, does the city have a role in that project, you know, if is the city providing, for example, financial support in the project versus if it's a, you know, completely private project, completely privately funded, and that a private entity comes in. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of, I think, kind of where the, the, the bar is raised a little higher. And again, not the only consideration, but certainly a consideration um, is when, if there's city financial support involved or if it involves city property, I mean, that's where some additional discussion on that point is certainly valid to have. Let's talk about the city financial support for this project. 1.85, the city has allocated uh, and dedicated 1.85 million in support of, of the project. Where did that number come from? That number came from two things. Uh, the first is essentially the, the estimate to, to demolish the building. And if the city did move forward with demolition, that would be a cost that the city would incur. Uh, the second part of that is one of the things that's been asked for in the RFP was that whoever was the selected development team, in this case Baum, would create additional space, cold storage space, for the Parks Department and the Oberg Botanical Gardens. And that cost to do that was estimated at around $700,000. So putting those two numbers together is what I believe got us to the $1.825 million that the city has committed to this project. And when you say demolish the, the feed mill, it's a city landmark. Um, at some point, did, how much of a consideration or concern was it that, oh, for example, the Landmarks Commission might, might look askance <laughs> at, at, A, the, the degree of degradation. He laughed, but we, eventually we would have sued. I mean, at, at what point did people say, you know, we've got a problem with a, with a city in control of a landmark that is being degraded, and, boy, how are we going to get a demolition permit of this landmark? Was that... How, how far up did that bubble as a consideration? Well, I mean, to be, to be sure, the city does not want to demolish the Garber Feed Mill. I mean, mm -hmm. the city wants uh, to see something happen there. Um, however, I mean, to your point, it is a, is a building that continues to um, be in a state of, of disrepair. And so I think sort of that discussion on – it wasn't a discussion that the city wanted to demolish the Garber Feed Mill. It's from – a public purpose standpoint when kind of estimating, you know, what is the level of city financial support that the city would want to provide to a project, 
one benchmark was well you know if if you know if 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 we don't have a good use of that site and if that building isn't rehabbed at some point it will become such a nuisance that it would be required to be torn down so rather than devote those public funds to tearing it down let's devote those public funds to a potential project that can rehabilitate the building and, and make good use of it i mentioned in the uh, intro to this segment the commonwealth development proposal for an arts incubator that i think was widely endorsed i think everybody thought that was a great use of the site it was consistent with east side artisanal activities and and had a lot of promise and then um, the recession are you surprised that commonwealth now that the economy has has revived that commonwealth didn't come back and and re-up that proposal i'm a little surprised but i think part of what was a challenge from the get-go with the commonwealth proposal was the amount of money that they were looking for in grants and in essentially grants and free money. It was north of 40% of their total cost was essentially grants from state, local, federal, and foundations that would help their project move ahead. And we are in a different economy today. Those money, those dollars have dried up in large part, and we were looking for something that was really going to succeed with a, a minimal amount of uh, city subsidy, which we've already discussed. So I can't speak for Commonwealth, but it's not terribly surprising that they did not come back and make another proposal. And what are the economics of the bound proposal? They will be creating, uh, rehabbing the entire building. There's a substantial amount of investment north of $20 million that will go into the building and to the uh, micro lodges that would be built on the North Platte. Uh, we've heard estimates for job creation in the tens up to maybe a hundred jobs. Uh, I don't know that any of those are known for certain, but I think they're estimates and I think they're, they're fair. So hopefully we can get all this done before the end of the year and start construction early next year. So the, the steps for, as I say, it's, it's now March 19th. The committee voted this recommendation on March 18th. What happens next? What happens next? Uh, well, we take the recommendation of the Common Council, and it would be referred out to the Plan Commission, the Park Commission, Landmarks Commission, and the Board of Estimates, then back to Council for action. Once that's done, city staff will work with the developer to craft a development agreement, a ground lease, a bill of sale. At the same time, the developer will be working on all of their entitlements as far as zoning, site plan review, access, uh, doing a land division as well. Additionally, we will be working with the DNR to remove deed restrictions from the property so that the whole, pro whole project can move forward. And when all of those things seamlessly come together <laughs> before the end of the year, we will close on the building and they will receive their tax credits that they will have applied for in the process, and then they will start construction. The, the tax credits, uh, Governor Walker's budget, I think, reduces substantially the availability of historic preservation tax credits. Is that a concern? It is a concern because our understanding is right now, as the proposed budget stands, if a development team is able to get their uh, all of their ducks in a row before the end of the year and own the building and have their tax credit application approved, they would be working and operating under the existing tax credit program. If it happens after that into the next into 2016, they would be working under the new proposed program and the tax credit program as we understand it would be modified greatly there would be much less money available and there would be additional 
uh, strings attached to it that may make it infeasible for the current proposal to actually get those tax credits. And even if they did, the tax credits may be worth a lot less. So time is of the essence for the council to, to finish its deliberations and the project to get locked in. Time is fleeting. Yeah. You, you, you said with, with some assurance that you'd have that you'd work with DNR to address the deed restriction. Is, is that going to be a contentious matter, or are you confident to the point of assurance that, that DNR will be no problem in that regard? Well, there are no guarantees in life, but uh, the DNR has to date been very agreeable and very amenable to working with us on this process. The, the biggest issue will be finding replacement, pro replacement property to buy new parkland. And we have several ideas in mind. We've been negotiating with several property owners. Uh, we believe that we can accomplish this. It's just making sure that everything comes together at the right time. Does it have to be of equal size? Uh, size and value. In addition, it also has to be located on a lake, river, or water feature because the funds that were actually used to purchase both the North Platte and the Garver Feed Mill were from the DNR Urban Rivers Stewardship Fund. So anything that replaces those park properties needs to be on a water feature. And do you have sites in, in mind that you're going to start negotiating if the, as this moves forward? We is have, that, yes. Does, does, that, does that have to be done before everything else or, or as by the end of the year? That's got to, one of the things that has to be completed, the purchase of the new land? We have to have the new land purchased. We have to have the deed restriction removed because the, uh, the development team will not be able to close on the site without that being done. Well, we better let you go so you can get back to this. I mean, this is you got a lot of work to do. <laughs> you know, it's all in a day's work. Dan Rolfs, the Community Development Project Manager in charge of the Garver Feed Mill Project. And thanks very much for being with us. And Thank you, congratulations sir. for getting it at least through committee. And now, now the real fun starts. <laughs> Indeed. Matt Nikolashevsky is going to stay with us. We're going to be joined momentarily by Dan Kennelly to talk about uh, the public market and some other activities. It is the April episode of Access to Development on the Madison City Channel. Please stay with us. This close. This close. This close to making history. We are this close. We are this close. This close to changing the world. We are this close. To making sure no child suffers a crippling disease ever again. We are this close to making history. We are this close to ending polio. Because we are this close to ending polio. We are this close to ending polio. We are this, this close. close to changing the world. This close. All we need is you. you. It's you. It's you. We are this close. This close. Be a part of history at rotary.org slash end polio. If I ride, I will know the way the trees smell after the rain. I will grow a heart so strong that hospitals will take Tuesdays off. If I ride, road rage will turn into laughter. And oil tankers will haul chocolate milk. And I won't be a boy or a girl. I will just be a rider.
Welcome back to the April episode of Access City Hall on the Madison City Channel. I'm still Stu. You're still you. We're still talking about economic development activities of the city of Madison. We've retained Matt Nikolaszewski. I will get it right on one of these segments. Perfect. Our buddy Matt, the director of the division, is still with us. We've been joined by Dan Kennelly, the economic development specialist, whose major project right now is the public market district. And I've been warned that I will get fined if I refer to it merely as the public market because it is, in fact, a public market district. The proposal has been, has been made to have it located in the vicinity of East Washington and First Street. Uh, some people had thought that in terms of the economic development and social spinoff, a South Park Street site would have been uh, more useful and, and uh, beneficial. But uh, Dan is going to explain, A, what the district would be and why it is most appropriately located on East Washington. Sure. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I did talk with Chief Colville, and there's now an ordinance <laughs> on the books. And if you use the word public market without adding district, you can be fined. So uh, keep that in mind out there. So the, the, the decision to locate the public market district uh, on the East Wash site was driven by a few things. Um, you know, not the least of which the city owns the Fleet Services Building, which is uh, the building at the intersection of Johnson and First Street, which is a fantastic 60,000 square foot um, cinder block built structure that's really well suited to conversion to what will become the first phase of the public market district, which will be the, the public market hall. Um, so we've got some preliminary floor plans now for how that building could be done uh, in a way that, that will really be spectacular. So, you know, the first um, piece of the equation was here's a situation where we don't have to buy real estate and we don't have to build a building because we already own it. The city's fleet services operation is moving out and it's really well suited to this uh, use. And then thinking more broadly about the idea of a district, um, you know, at this site we're within about a mile of the feed kitchens on the north side. We're within about a mile now of the Garver Feed Mill, which is um, shaping up to be another spectacular food project. Um, and we're along uh, adjacent to Bird Jones Park and very close to uh, the riverfront. So it's a, an opportunity to create a really uh, unique public space um, and a really uh, special public market district that has a variety of uses. Um, not only, you know, vendors selling locally made food and artisans selling locally made products, but also potentially some food processing space, um, food storage and distribution space, and really creating the epicenter of the, the region's food system um, with this investment. Matt, when, when you talk to people around the community, do you find that they understand what you're talking about when you say a public market district, or do they think... Oh, would it just be like an indoor farmer's market? How do you, how do you perceive people understand this project? Um, I think people increasingly are starting to understand, especially relative to the concept of, of food entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, we have a, a tremendous opportunity in Madison. We already have some great uh, food-based companies here, uh, both on the sort of micro and the, and the macro end of the scale. And so as we've been to talk about the concept of a district and its importance in growing that food-based economy within Madison, I think people are starting to see that, that yes, it's, it's more than, than, than just a, um, a single building in the sale of, of, of produce and, and, and prepared food products, that it's, it's part of helping that broader food economy along as well. Is the primary uh, advantage or the primary 
thing that this will accomplish an economic development, a social development, a, a health development? Um, what, what is its primary usefulness? Well, ideally, it would touch on all. Um, I mean, it's certainly, um, you know, an economic development project, uh, both in terms of uh, helping to uh, create uh, those, you know, food-based businesses and helping those food-based businesses grow. Uh, but certainly, you know, it's a health-related project. You know, the concept of, of how do we uh, provide, you know, additional access to largely fresh and, and local food. Um, so it, it, it will ultimately serve a, a variety of, of different needs. Dan, uh, what, what's, what's your favorite part of, of the overall package of what this will mean? Well, I mean, you know, to, to Matt's point, the public market district is kind of an inkblot test where people will look at it and see what they want to see. So if you care about public health, it's about a public health project. If you care about, you know, the environment, it's about saving farmland and, you know, uh, local food. You know, I think for us as the city's economic development staff, the opportunity to leverage food as really a platform for entrepreneurship and really help food do what, you know, the food sector, the economy has historically done, uh, particularly, which is provide um, economic opportunity for communities that have historically, you know, been on shaky ground when it comes to um, starting businesses and uh, building wealth for their families, you know, for, for immigrants, people of color, people who maybe haven't had the opportunity to get a great education. Food um, is, is a sector, you know, if you're able to make something delicious and willing to work hard and start a business, food is a sector of the economy that can really do that. So that's what excites me the most. And, you know, one of the most exciting things of the work we've done so far is we've cultivated a cadre of prospective uh, public market vendors and tenants who are really excited about the project and really see this as their chance to get a business going. In, in terms of the economic development, the website uh, notes that the uh, Pike Place Public Market in Seattle has 250 commercial businesses, 100 farmers, 200 artists and craftspeople, 70 persons employed in the market, 2,000 direct jobs. Um, but it, you note that, keep in mind, this took 100 years to create. What do you see as the build-out just from the economic development aspect? Um, let's assume that, that it opens within a relative period of time. What, what's its economic development build-out? A hundred years. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, I, think, I think we're hopeful that we can start with um, the public market in the city's fleet building and really grow into a district from there. There's certainly space up the Packers Corridor potentially for related businesses. Um, as the Capital East District continues to pick up steam, there's more space. Um, so I think there's an opportunity here to really, for the city, to make this initial investment in creating the public market um, and then, you know, watching uh, the food sector uh, grow from there and really um, be a source of, of economic development, again, for, you know, for decades. The website also notes that among the closed issues are ones that, that you've resolved. Vendors are interested. Uh, c customers are supportive. Uh, it's a district, not a market. You make that clear on, on the website. Uh, and there are good potential sites. The open issues include design, operating plan, cost, management plan, phasing, partners, grants, maintenance, governance, ownership. Those There are a lot of unresolved questions here. There, there are. I mean, sometimes, you know, the project management aspect of this can yeah. feel abusive. But, you know, I think the, the fact remains that we're making great progress. We're expecting uh, 
the next uh, phase of the business plan to be completed in the next couple of weeks. So from there, some of those questions like design and operating plan and cost, we'll have a better sense of um, as soon as potentially you know, two weeks from now. Uh, and from there, we're going to do another round of community outreach to really take those plans, show them to the community, and start getting feedback. So I think things are really going to pick up steam um, to start resolving some of those open issues over the next month or two. And what, what, what is the full range of what has been accomplished and decided to date? Matt, what, where exactly do we stand in, in the development of this of the district? Sure. Uh, well, where we stand today is we are currently under contract with with our consulting firm uh, to prepare public spaces, public places, pro- project for public spaces project. to prepare a a business plan for the public market. Uh, what I mean, where we are to date is, as you've alluded, you know, we've done surveying and have had meetings uh, with the general public, with potential vendors, so we know the interest is there. We took a look at a variety of locations throughout the community, had some public outreach in that regard. Uh, we've identified the priority is for the, the first in, in Johnson Street location. So now our, our consulting team has taken all of that and is working on preparing a business plan uh, for a market at that location, which will help uh, begin to answer some of the, the outstanding questions that, that you raised. And would there be city employees managing the district? Would, would, would the city own the entire site and have city employees, the public, ma- the public market district manager? And is that, is that how it will be run? We're not completely sure yet, and some of those details will get fleshed out in the business plan. Our sense right now is that the city will not necessarily manage the day-to-day operations of the public market district, that uh, most likely uh, the recommendation from the consulting team will be for a new nonprofit organization to coalesce and for that organization to hire staff and do the ultimate day-to-day management of the market, signing leases, um, you know, maintenance, things like that. The city may continue to own the underlying real estate, um, but for a variety of reasons, including fundraising and other things, there's um, some benefits to taking the, the active management outside of the city. But that's an open question. What, what do other cities do? The direction most of them have been going is towards nonprofit management. Historically, a lot of cities did have uh, municipally run public markets, and a few still do, but uh, today most are seeing the benefits of having management done by um, some group that has over, you know, public oversight to maintain commitment to the mission, um, but um, have the day-to-day management of it done by a nonprofit organization or a cooperative of vendors or, or some other type of governance. So the city might create a public market district commission the, the same way right. it, it has a board of parks commissioners to oversee um, activities including Ulbrich and other things? Or is, is that one of the models? It could that be. Might... Yeah, I mean, right now the city's local food committee is the spearhead of the project, mm-hmm. and that committee may evolve into some kind of oversight body, um, you know, that works in tandem with a nonprofit board that, uh, you know, that runs the market and, and, and hires an executive director. Um, there's certainly models, um, you know, in the community and, and other places of these things that sort of blend the public and nonprofit sectors. Um, but, you know, the answer is we don't quite know, but the, but the, we're probably headed towards something where it, this isn't a purely public facility where it's um, some type of outside organization that's involved. Matt, Dan mentioned spearhead, referred to spearhead. How, how important is it 
to you in, in getting this project moving forward that the mayor is so supportive of it. I, I haven't heard him as enthusiastic about many other things as, mm -hmm. as he is about this. Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's great that, that the mayor, that he really does support this project, and certainly it's, it's helpful from a, a staff perspective as, as we work on the project. And I think, you know, that, um, you know, one of the reasons that the mayor is so supportive of this project is because it has so many great opportunities. It touches on so many different aspects of the community. It creates, you know, a place for people to gather. It provides, you know, that healthy food and, and increases uh, access and awareness to those healthy foods. It provides uh, the economic development benefits, uh, especially to the new entrepreneurs that we hope to attract there. So, so the great thing about this project is that it touches on, you know, multiple different areas that the city really wants to encourage and wants to grow. And so, so certainly having the mayor's uh, continued support for the project has been great and, uh, and, and has helped it move along. Is this going to be the only uh, public market district? A lot of people, even when they look at, at the quantitative analysis and the number of cars and, and the number of, and the demographics and, and see the supportive documentation that explains why the committee chose East Washington, they still feel, boy, this would have been great on South Park Street. It would have been a, a wonderful food resource, would have been an employment resource, and, and they regret that it's not going uh, on, on, onto South Park Street. Are there any prospects for, for further developments, a uh, phase two that could be on South Park Street? It, absolutely. I, you know, I think the Madison Public Market District will hopefully be a first phase in a broader strategy again, to really build on food as part of our identity, part of our economy, and that we should really be thinking about a network of not only public markets, but a network of, of a food system that engages, you know, ethnic grocers that are spread throughout the community where maybe, you know, with the right uh, networking, we could give them the opportunity to provide a wider range of produce in some of those small, you know, corner grocers and ethnic grocers that are around the neighborhood, you know, spawning more farmers markets in neighborhoods and really think of Madison as a market city where, you know, there's the, the, the Madison public market district, which will hopefully be the epicenter of this activity, but it has tentacles throughout the city and more, you know, markets popping up uh, in different parts of the communities. The, the long range vision, you know, again, as we look ahead over decades, that this is really just a first step. We referred in the last segment to the uh, deed restriction involving the DNR and uh, the North Platte on, for the Garver feed mill. We've also got a deed restriction here regarding Burge-Owens Field. When you read the, your analysis, I, I, I can sense your excitement at, at using Burge-Owens Field as part of this project, but it, it does have a deed restriction. How does that potentially impact the development of this site as, the mar as a district? Yes, uh, Burge-Owens, uh by its deed restriction, must remain a park, first and foremost, and must uh, maintain uh, some of its primary purpose as providing room for athletic fields. Um, and, and, you know, the deed restriction calls for this being a sort of athletic-focused park space. But that being said, um, it's a very large park uh, adjacent to what would be the public market district and adjacent to the Ahara River. And having uh, that green space availability uh, adjacent to uh, uh, the public market district will certainly help uh, in programming, help in creating an environment that people want to go to, um, 
So it's it certainly, even though that deed restriction does exist and, and we have to respect that, there's still tremendous opportunity to, to use that, that resource. Do hot dog eating contests count as athletic competitions or athletic uses? <laughs> sure. So what's the next step? What are the next steps? And, and, and when will, when, if all goes well, will we see a public market district beginning its operations? Sure. So the immediate term next steps are uh, we will receive uh, a draft of the final business plan, um, hopefully again in the next couple of weeks. There will be some public involvement uh, around that business plan to review it, discuss it in the community in the months after that. Ultimately, that business plan needs to get approved by the city council. We're hoping that happens, you know, spring, summer. Uh, and then we go from business planning to implementation, so fundraising, f signing leases, um, figuring out the, the space and final design, um, and Fleet Services needs to move out of that building to their new planned facility. So realistically, it's probably 2017 um, before the project opens, but we have things like Mad City Bazaar now emerging, so we'll hopefully start to see uh, the momentum continue to build, even if we're still a couple years out. Are you going to sell naming rights? Uh, if you're willing to make a donation, <laughs> it could be the, the Levitan Madison Public Market. Well, it depends what you're growing. Right. <laughs> we'll have to wait a couple of years for that to happen. We're going to take a short pause. My thanks to Dan Kenley, the Economic Development Specialist in charge of the Public Market District. And uh, Matt's going to stick around. We'll be joined shortly by Ruth Roller to talk uh, about other food activities. And we're also going to sneak in a little bit of Judge Doyle Square. It is the April episode of Access City Hall on the Madison City Channel. Please, please, please stay with us. I'm home and I love it. I'm home where I belong. I'm home and I love it. I'm home where I belong. It's always nice to come home, but these days, many Americans are at risk of foreclosure and losing their homes. Making Home Affordable is a free program from the U.S. government that has already helped over a million struggling homeowners like these. And we want to help you. I'm home. I'm home. And I love it. I'm home. I'm home. Find out now what your options are. Go to makinghomeaffordable.gov or call 1-888-995-HOPE. The sooner you act, the better chance we can help you. I'm home. I'm home. Where I belong. When I was a young kid in the outback, what started me on a path I've taken was the respect and love I feel for these and all animals. So I had to tell you about an organization, one that makes a difference in the lives of animals all over the world, the Morris Animal Foundation. Visit morrisanimalfoundation.org to support animal health and welfare worldwide. Your gift today, mate, will give animals a healthier tomorrow. Welcome back to the April episode of Access City Hall on the Masson City Channel. I'm Stu Levitan. We're still joined by Matt Mikliszewski, the economic the Director of the Division of Economic Development, and we've now been joined by Ruth Rolick, the Business Development Specialist at, uh, in the division. Apparently, they have lots of job titles over at uh, Economic Development uh, Division. And Ruth's uh, project is going to continue our discussion of food. We've talked about food on the east side at Garver, food 
in uh, on the isthmus at uh, the public market district proposed for East Johnson uh, for East Washington and First Street. And now we're going to talk about food and the need for a full-service grocery store in the southwest segment sector of the city in Verona Road, Allied Drive area. Uh, Ruth, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, there has been a food desert in the Allied Drive, Verona Road area for some years. Um, a grocery store closed. We've got a, a highway that separates a neighborhood from where a grocery store used to be. Now I think even Walgreens is closing. How serious a food desert is there in, in the southwest part of the city? Mm-hmm. There is a real serious issue with food um, insecurity in that area. There are grocery stores that are even within a mile of that specific location. The problem is most of them are not considered affordable grocery stores. And for the residents of the Allied neighborhood, affordability is a huge issue in food access. Um, so what the city has done is um, when the Walgreens closed, and they closed mid-January, so there's no Walgreens there. Walgreens had served the neighborhood for over 20 years, and that particular Walgreens had exceptional, exceptionally high levels of food purchases for Walgreens in general. So we knew that the neighborhood was depending very heavily on that Walgreens. Um, at this point, there's no immediate walkable access to food in the area. And so what the city has done is um, sort of to created two programs to help. One is an emergency food um, access uh, fund that would help people in the immediate get to and from grocery, affordable grocery stores with sh- shared um, ride programs that the Allied Cooperative is organizing with help from the Willie Street Cooperative and also um, cab rides with a partnership with Union Cab. So that is sort of being set up and will begin soon. The next part of it is a $300,000 forgivable, partially forgivable loan for a full-service affordable grocery store to locate within what we're calling the Allied Drive Verona Road neighborhood, which is sort of both sides of Rona Road. And how, how are we defining what an affordable grocery store is? That's a really good question. Um, there are a number of different indicators to create affordability, but for us, we have a really specific um, guideline for uh, price points, the type of food um, that will be available. Um, most of what we're called deep discount grocers are grocers like Save-A-Lots or Aldi's, where they have bulk, sort of low-cost pricing, um, sometimes limited service. Um, but, yeah, so that's how we're it, – it's a broad definition, but it's – we have guidelines that are set up to define that. It's an industry standard, um, the term deep discount grocer is an industry term. Matt, is something like this an economic development Proposal or, or a social welfare and health proposal? Well, it's 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 certainly to a degree you could make the argument uh, that that it really is both. Um, but you know, from an economic development standpoint, uh, the reality is we know that that having access to food is important for uh, maintaining and, and creating stable neighborhoods. And uh, you know, certainly um, you know the city's made great investment in the Allied Drive neighborhood over the years. 
you know, we recognize, as, as Ruth mentioned, uh, that there is definitely a demonstrated need to have some more access for food. So as we continue to work uh, to make sure that Ally Drive is a great neighborhood to live in, uh, you know, one of those aspects is to have the availability of food. So from that perspective, it, it's an economic development activity, but certainly it's also a health social activity as well because people need easy access for food. You know, I'm picturing Ally Drive in my mind. I can't even imagine where the closest legitimate food source is other than, I mean, there's a, there are a couple of gas stations within walking distance, but I can't, where do people shop for food? Where do people who live on Ally Drive get their food? Well, I mean, definitely when we saw the numbers from Walgreens, a large number of people were getting day-to-day -day item food items from Walgreens, much more so than in other Walgreens in the city. Um, many of them identify Aldi's and Woodman's as a place that they like to shop. There are really large transportation issues for a lot of residents um, in the neighborhood. Many of them do not have access to stable transportation. And so, um, you know, there's been a growing need for a long time and with the Walgreens closing. It just sort of, you know, created even more of an immediate need for that, those day-to-day -day items to just have some place where they can get to safely with their families. And, and how much of a further impediment has the expansion of Verona Road been? I mean, there's going to be a highway cutting through there now with multi-lanes and, mm -hmm. and uh, easy on it. I mean, how, that's eating up a lot of real estate. How, mm -hmm. how much is, is that going to complicate your efforts? The road construction actually creates a little bit of a better situation because it allows safe access back and forth underneath. Um, the bridge that they're creating to the other side of Rona Road from Allied Drive. So that's one sort of positive of it. The hardest part is that in the um, three to five year period of time right now, when the construction is happening, um, it is very difficult on the businesses that are there. And so part of the reason to create this fund was to sort of help jumpstart um a grocer to think about moving into that area before the construction is over. So to me, the biggest impediment right now is just that it is going to create some um, barriers for the drivers to get in and out of there quickly to purchase services from a store. And, and what is the state of the proposal right now and what happens next? Mm -hmm. So it's been passed uh, and it's um, passed through council. And so the RFP, the request for proposals from grocery operators or property owners, um, will be released um, in the next two weeks, and we're expecting to get letters of intent um, by May 1st, and hopefully we'll have an agreement with someone um, by July 1st. And best case, a grocery store opens when? Best case, a grocery store would open by the end of December, early January, um, and that's a pretty aggressive timeline, assuming that they would be moving in to a building that already exists that is somewhat set up for food. Is there such a building? Mm -hmm. Where is it? What is that? Well, the Walgreens okay, is one example. Okay, so you think that would be, that would be a one. potential site? But there are multiple sites that could actually work well for this type of proposal. So one thing we can almost guarantee is that there will be more progress on this before there's a final answer on Judge Doyle Square. Would that be <laughs> fair to say, Mr. Meklashevsky? 
I, I hope not. Uh, you know, Judge Joe Squares continue to move forward, and, and, and hopefully we can uh, have some alignment in those timelines of, of getting both projects up well, and running well, let's, sooner let's, rather than later. Well, let's let's talk. We're, we're now going to shift to the biggest ticket item mm-hmm. uh, on your plate. Not not to say that that food security yeah. isn't important, but in terms of the overall work plan of the of the division, mm-hmm. I have to think that if Judge Joe Square hasn't quite attained mythic white whale status, it's getting awfully close. It was in July 2012 that the council passed a downtown plan that said pursue the development of Judge Doyle Square. It was in February 2013 that the council authorized an RFP. February 2014, that that was a year ago, Mm -hmm. that uh, the JDS committee completed its analysis, uh, recommended the JDS Development LLC, which is the Hamas company Mm -hmm. and another firm. Negotiating team negotiated up until this past December, they asked for some more time, and instead of giving them more time, the council ended the negotiations with the JDS development team, issued a new RFP, mm-hmm. and said, start over. What went so wrong that the city had to start over? Well, I, I think really when you take a look back at, at where we were uh, last year and now where we're heading in the new RFP is that we were fairly open-ended in, in the first RFP in terms of uh, what type of commitment of city financial assistance that the city was willing to provide and, and, and what it was willing to provide it for. And, and you know, through the deliberation of the council, uh, you know, there were some concerns about uh, the amount of, of TIF assistance that was proposed and, and using that TIF assistance towards um, the proposed hotel development. Um, moving into the RFP that's that's on the street currently, uh, the city's been very clear and has really articulated both what it's it's interested in seeing from a development on uh, those two blocks downtown, and also what it's willing and not willing uh, to use TIF for. And 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 the really where the city wants to direct the TIF assistance is to help uh, with the cost for structured parking that will both serve that development, but also serve a public need, uh, because as we all know, uh, the government east parking ramp uh, needs to be replaced in, in the next couple of years. What was, I, I didn't, I was assuming that people watching were fairly conversant with what we're talking about, Judge Joe Square, two, two blocks, the Mass Municipal Building, which is a national and local landmark, mm-hmm. uh, built in 1929, the city purchased it in 1979, uh, the government east ramp, which is not a city or a national landmark built in the, in the mid-1960s, is crumbling, has been for some time. What is the prime motivator, the prime driver of the project? Is it to come up with something that will underwrite the, the reconstruction of government east? Is it to provide a hotel for Monona Terrace? Is it to rehab the office space for city divisions and apartments? Is it all of the above? What What is, is, is it edifice complex? What, 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 what is the, the prime <laughs> direction here? It, it's really all of the above. Uh, we know government East needs to be replaced. That's, we know that for, sur- for sure. Um, and we know that it doesn't make sense to, to reconstruct a above ground structured parking ramp as we have today. Uh, the, the land downtown is just too valuable to do that. So, uh, the preference is to somehow incorporate that replacement parking into a broader uh, redevelopment of, of those two blocks. Uh, there's a great desire to have more hotel space to serve Monona Terrace. Um, you know, Monona Terrace uh, 
has indicated um, that uh, the availability of a room block of hotels uh, to serve uh, conferences and conventions is, is a limiting factor in their ability to attract those outside uh, conferences and conventions from coming here. So certainly we want, given that the city has already invested so much in the Monona Terrace property and continues to, you know, we want some hotel space to be able to further help Monona Terrace. And then finally, this building uh, admittedly needs needs some TLC. Uh, we're still operating, I think, under the original boiler uh, that was installed in here, which, um, given the day of the week, may or may not be working. Well, so it was good enough for Judge Doyle. It's good enough for me. So we need more. Uh, we need some some investment here as well. On the hotel, the original RFP called for a full-service hotel with at least 250 rooms mm -hmm. reserved for Monona Terrace. Mm -hmm. The new RFP is an urban mixed-use model with 250 rooms, as large a room block as possible for, for Monona Terrace. Mm -hmm. If that modified, reduced proposal is good enough for Monona Terrace now, did the city err in its original level of proposal? Well, you know, the, the question, I think it was valid originally, you know, the desire for a full-service hotel, you know, from, in terms of, of something that individuals were interested in, you know, certainly was, was a valid request to have. The, the question became when the city received the proposals back and, and had the dollar values attached to that to really uh, ask ourselves, you know, do we really need a full-service hotel and are we willing to provide the additional TIF subsidy uh, to make that happen. And after some discussion on, on the part of, of the council and working with city staff um, and, and, and our, our consultant on the project, uh, the, the, the decision was made that for to serve the convention center, uh, that there are some not full service, but still limited service, so, so some great hotels that are out there uh, that could help serve uh, that Monona Terrace need and, and convention uh, industry that may not be full service and that there may be some options that uh, would require less in the way of, of city financial assistance but still provide uh, some great hotel space to, to help serve Monona Terrace. The city negotiated with JDS, excuse me, JDS for about eight months, mm -hmm. eight, nine months. JDS, Hamas, Bob Dunn. Bob Dunn certainly is experienced in dealing with the city on large controversial projects, mm -hmm. but to break off negotiations and, and rather than modify the negotiations with JDS to end them and issue a new RFP, are you worried or is the city worried that that's going to send a message of unpredictability to potential uh, vendors or potential negotiating partners that you can negotiate for nine months and then boom, you're back to square one? Mm -hmm. Well, in, in any negotiation, um, obviously, you know, as, as you are moving through that negotiation process, you enter that process in good faith and, and you uh, work through and see if you can come to terms on, on an agreement. Um, in this instance, it was clear that, that the city and, and the JDS team were not coming uh, to terms on, on a development agreement. And so uh, the city, you know, I think rightfully at, at that time then made the decision, you know, rather than continuing down a path of negotiation that was not being fruitful uh, to put to, to conclude that negotiation and to take a step back. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind is that before issuing the new RFP that, that's currently out on the street, the council uh, took some time 
to really ask the question and, and really refined uh, the RFP and, and what they were interested in looking at. So that now, as we're issuing the current RFP, uh, the hope is that because there's some, some more guidance there in terms of what the city wants to see, that we'll get some proposals that are really tailored into that, what the RFP called for, and that we can then have a much more uh, timely negotiation and, and have a successful negotiation leading to a, a development agreement at the end of the day. And do you, is the issue of the use of this building, the municipal building, settled? Is this guaranteed to be f continuous office space as opposed to potentially being the hotel? The, the council has indicated uh, that, that they don't want the space being used for the hotel, that, that they want the space to be office space. Best case scenario, when, when do we see an agreement reached and construction begin? Um, I think uh, that we could, so the proposals are due um, in May. Um, I think that, uh, again, given my point about how we're much more focused in this RFP, I, I think we could uh, negotiate over a couple of months and, and begin having a, a, a project move through uh, uh, the city council um, sometime during the summer. We'll have you come back in September and see how it's going. My, thanks <laughs> my to, pleasure. My thanks to Matt Nikliszewski, the Director of the Division of Economic Development. My thanks to Ruth Rolick, Dan Kennelly, and Dan Rolfs. My thanks to everyone here at Masson City Channel. Of course, my thanks to you for watching. It is Access City Hall on the Masson City Channel. I'm Stu Levitan. We hope to see you right back here next month. <laughs>